The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us for today's Barron's Live call on the market outlook and stocks to watch. My guests are Barron's Deputy Editor, Ben Levison, and Barry Knapp, founder of Ironside's Macroeconomics. Also, we'd like to acknowledge and thank the sponsor of today's program, Nuveen, a global investment manager. You can find out more at nuveen.com. Welcome, Barry and Ben, and thank you so much for joining today's call. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you. So, Barry, we like to start with the guest, the outside guest, that is. So I'm going to start with you today by noting that we are having a rare rally in the markets after what feels like a terrible few months. So I am wondering, should we read something hopeful into today's market action, or do you think it will prove an aberration? Uh, We've had a number of decent Mondays, um, quite a string of them, actually, week Fridays and and decent Mondays, uh, I'd be much more inclined to think that the market was responding favorably to perhaps perhaps Nick Timoros's article this weekend suggesting that maybe the Fed is uh, giving up on this idea that they really need to weaken growth in order to ensure that the disinflationary process remains intact. In other words, inflation goes down and stays down. Um, But I, I... as I was hinting, I'd be much more inclined to uh, think that that could indeed be the case were the back end of the Treasury market not under pressure again this morning. So um, that was true even before there was, a, I guess, a, something of a leak on the Nikkei about the Japanese loosening yield curve control tonight. Pretty much from the opening last night, the back end of the Treasury market was selling off, rates are going up. So that's very much the same three-month trend we've been in since the end of July, and um, that's at the core of the real issue for the equity market. Do you have a longer-term forecast for the S&P? Um, I, I do. I, I've been in the bullish camp for most of this year, actually, thinking that it was... You were right for most of this year. What's that? You were right for most of this year. That, that's right. So I, I expected that the market would recover the entire loss of 2022 as we wound down the tightening process and the disinflationary trend, which, you know, when I wrote my outlook for 2023, I called it the path from nine to four, but then what? And, and in essence, inflation fell all the way to three, a little bit more than I thought. Um, Once we got into July, late July, I I did expect a a pullback, but I thought it would be fairly shallow until the September FOMC meeting. And um, that September FOMC meeting was a real negative turning point for me. We had already a a bear steepening sell-off, this pullback in the back end of the Treasury market caused by increased supply. And then 
the Fed seemed not to understand that this inverting the yield curve, getting the yield curve to flatten by longer term rates going up is going to be just absolutely, uh, I, don't, I don't want to be hyperbolic about this, but a real existential threat to small and medium banks. And uh, that to me was a turning point where we changed our forecast, no longer uh, expected the S&P to end the year at 4,800, thought we would go down to probably to 4,200. We've obviously gone even lower than that. And uh, I can't see my way clear to having a year-end rally until we have a, a real confirmed um, pause and not even a pause, a pivot in, in Fed policy. And so that remains a big issue for us. I, I do think that as we get into 2024, there is some very positive things going on within the broader economy. I expect this to be a real strong cycle for productivity. We were already seeing technology innovation adoption accelerate in the consumer services sector late last business cycle. That's what caused productivity to accelerate in 2018 and 2019. I think we could have a real strong capital spending cycle like the 60s or 90s. Um, as I said, that technology innovation adoption, which is in consumer services, would likely spread to some other sectors, uh, healthcare, financial services, the industrial sector. Um, but we need to get through the real policy problems that we have, both, both fiscal and monetary. So uh, I suppose if I were writing my 20... 24 outlook right now, I'd be relatively positive on 2024, but we still haven't overcome, um, you know, the issues we have with treasury issuance, with misguided Fed policy, and um, I think the probability of a year-end rally right now, absent a real change in Fed policy, is uh, is fairly low. The Fed has been hiking rates since March 22. Now the mantra in the markets has become higher for longer or higher for much longer. So I want to get your forecast for rates. The expectation is that there will be no rate hike at the November reading, the December at the November meeting. The December meeting is still considered live, as they say. Then there's a January meeting. Um, what does higher for longer mean to you? Um, I think it, it's little more than forward guidance um, in a Fed, the Fed's vain attempt. First of all, I think they overweight the importance of forward guidance. But um, the Fed and the academics that support the Fed have fallen in love with this idea that forward guidance really does have a bearing on the longer term inflation outlook. I trace that all the way back to the Volcker era. I, I recall being in an event at the National Association of Business Economists, going to a breakout dinner with a former Fed staffer and asking, you know, why did we have 30 years of disinflation? And his view unequivocally was it was all to do with Fed credibility beginning with Volcker. So I asked him some other questions about whether it might have anything to do with deregulatory policy that began under Carter or extended through Reagan um, whether it might have something to do with the massive labor supply shock when China and the Soviet bloc were integrated into the global supply chains. And his answer was definitively no. So this idea that the Fed really influenced the longer-term inflation outlook is so ingrained in the almost ideology at the Fed that it traps them. 
and it traps them into uh, policy mistakes, like continuing QE much longer than they should have, passively unwinding that process. And right now, I think they're stuck. My view is that they will be cutting rates by a full percent next year. They need to get the policy rate down to closer to 4% for the banking system to not reach the crisis stage. In essence, small and medium banks can't operate without an upward sloping yield curve. And if the Fed insists by getting the yield to getting the yield curve to disinvert, to become normally shaped by pushing up longer term rates, that 30% of bank assets that are held in securities are in best case um, frozen assets on balance sheets that'll crowd out other kind of investments. And at worst case, we'll force them to raise capital and uh, and even have a one-way ticket to the FDIC you know, um, support. So this to me is, is where the Fed is likely headed. They just don't know it yet and won't admit it. So in a year's time, I would expect the 10-year yield to be not that much different than it is now, but the two-year note yield to be much lower. And, uh, and that will create a, a much more healthy environment for the banking system, which will then be able to provide credit to commercial real estate. I'm less concerned about offices than I am multifamily, that is apartment buildings, uh, small businesses in general, and even government finance. I mean, a big part of the problem with this treasury supply is that the second best customer the treasury had was the banking system. And if you look at small bank holdings of uh, securities right now, treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, it's falling at a nearly 20% annualized rate. Um, so the, the treasury really needs the banking system to help them absorb all that supply. For sure. I wanted to talk a little bit more about the Treasury. Uh, today at three o'clock, the Treasury Department is going to announce its borrowing estimates for the fourth quarter and the first quarter of next year. And as we remember, the bond market kind of freaked out at the end of July when the Treasury Department announced its third quarter funding needs. Some people are calling this week's announcement even bigger news than the FOMC meeting, which takes place Tuesday and Wednesday. So what's your read on this announcement and the government's financing plans? It'll, it'll be fascinating. Um, I, um, you know, when the, when the debt ceiling deal got done and the Treasury increased issuance, they sold mostly Treasury bills to rebuild that Treasury general account. That was finance, financed out of the you know, reverse repo program. It's getting kind of technical in the plumbing weeds of the system, but the system did have abundant an abundant amount of liquidity, and so it was able to absorb it. It was later when Treasury started increasing their coupon issuance, as you announced, as you mentioned, that early or late July, early August announcement of increased coupon issuance. That's what really started to impact the markets, and and I don't think this point gets emphasized enough that the most crucial price in the global capital market system is the yield on the 10 year treasury. And, you know, so much, so many assets are benchmarked off of that. Um, certainly mortgage backed securities. And by the way, the spread of mortgages to treasuries has never been wider. That mortgage backed securities are the tail that wags the dog in the fixed income market. And there's no demand for mortgages right now. Fortunately, there's not much, 
new purchase interest, but the market is, um, you know, the market is, is definitely struggling and that price is absolutely crucial. So there's a debate about whether they would increase bill issuance and try and soften the blow to the markets, but they're already at the maximum um, percentage of bills, 20% that's recommended by the advisory committee. So I think they're going to need to sell more coupons. And I think the market's going to struggle with that, particularly as long as the Fed is saying they're going to keep the policy rate above 5% for the next 15 months. Um, that'll make it a situation where the banking system just can't help absorb that supply. So, you know, it's back to the, the same talking point. So that that announcement is is a fairly big deal for sure. So we have a lot of challenges ahead, and I think we could talk about this for the next hour or two, but I do want to toggle over to Ben and talk about some of the news coming up this week. Um, ben, tell us about some of the corporate earnings coming up. Apple is scheduled to report on Thursday, and suddenly there are reasons for concern about Apple from conditions in China to competitors' embrace of AI. So how do you read things for the stock, and how do you read things for the earnings announcement? Right. I think the good thing for the for the stock is that it's dropped uh, about 14 percent um, for the last three months since the last earnings report. Um, and, you know, that uh, it really signals that there are worries out there, but it's worries about the, the market generally as well. Um, and you have to ask, is that is that enough, considering just how uh, concerned people do seem to be? Um, there are concerns just around uh, how many iPhones that they're able to sell. Um, worries about uh, China, where they're getting increased competition from Huawei. Um, you have FX headwinds. Um, and I know uh, Andrew Barry has been very vocal on uh, on Barron's Live when, um, that appears on uh, Friday that uh, um, the uh, um, that that he thinks the stock is going to be uh, you know kind of dead money for a while, and I think that a Apple really does need to show that uh, you know it, it has a plan uh, for the future uh, right now that's beyond just uh, you know trying to sell sell these phones because they're they're selling, but they're not selling perhaps as good as everybody thought. This is really almost the first time in a very very long time that someone would say Apple needs a plan. Yeah, I mean, it's they, they seem to be in some ways lagging um, some of the other big tech companies just in thinking about what the future is, or at least they don't have the obvious product uh, in the way that uh, um, that Google does or Microsoft does um, right now. Um, of course, it didn't help Google. Um, Google's cloud uh, growth slowed and the stock got, got hammered. Uh, Microsoft did better after reporting earnings. But, um, you know, it just uh, it does seem in some ways a, a little behind the, the game right now. So before we go on to other companies posting earnings this week, Barry, I wanted to get your take on the big tech companies. They've led the market this year. They've led the market for a long time. Do you think they will continue to be the leaders? Yeah, they've, they've been on a, ver a very different earnings cycle than most of the rest of the market. Um, as we know, tech earnings surged early in the pandemic and so if you think about them lapping their comps, they actually had something of an earnings recession a good six months before the rest of the S&P 500 did. I went into the year underweight tech, but noticed in the fourth quarter earnings season last January that um, net revisions 
sort of earnings momentum had turned already with that sector. And the rate of change of earnings growth really does drive the multiple. So that surge that started for fourth quarter 2022 earnings and then carried on for a couple of quarters was really the catalyst behind that, you know, that group. I call it tech and tech related, right? So comm services, even discretionary, gap weighted or dominated by that. And then, of course, tech itself. But those revisions have started to stall out. Um, and um, you know, the, the, the stocks are expensive, to be sure. So I don't know. It's a tricky spot because it, it, if I reference or, or go back to a point I made earlier about technology innovation adoption being a real driver of productivity in the uh, in the 2020s, the tech sector will clearly be you know at the forefront of that. Um, but we're having a real valuation comeuppance right now again with you know the back end of the treasury market under this much pressure it's hard to see anything that's expensive do particularly well so if you even think about this correction we've had the 10% correction it began with cyclical struggling in august and then we had that incredible sell off in defensives the utility sector for example had unprecedentedly large declines, um, you know, in the September period after that Fed meeting. And so I, I think we're, you know, we're just correcting some of the excessive valuation in tech right now. So I, I guess to make a short story long, I do like the longer term um, fundamental story for the tech sector. But um, until we can stabilize the back end of the Treasury market, um, I think there's going to be pressure on valuations on anything that's expensive, and surely a number of these tech companies are expensive. And uh, Barry, um, you know, you said that, you know pressure on things that are are expensive, but you're also seeing pressure on the stuff that's that's cheap. Um, you know, banks are are very cheap. Um, I think of automakers are very cheap. Um, it doesn't seem like you know you want to you can actually be in expensive stuff or the very cheapest. Stuff. That's a great. That's a great question, Ben. And the way I'm thinking about um, banks and small caps in particular is that the framework that Chairman Powell laid out at the September FOMC meeting was, okay, we've sort of given up on the disinflationary trend. We don't think inflation is really going to get back to two until 2026. And in order to get it to head down towards our target and stay down, we need weaker growth. So if you think about that framework, right, there's three Fed mandates. Financial stability was their original mandate. And then, um, you know, inflation, even back in the 20s, they were focused on that in 30s. And then it became, well, full employment after that 1946 Full Employment Act. The Fed right now is in a spot where either growth slows, which is bad for banks and bad for small caps, the most ec economically sensitive parts of the market, or we have a financial accident. And as I my comments earlier implied, having a yield curve with this kind of a structure, this much inverted, is bad news for banks. So banks and small caps lose if the Fed causes a financial accident, and banks and small caps lose if the Fed gets their wish and the economy weakens. So you know, tech loses only in that valuation struggle financial accident scenario where we have a highly correlated sell-off, but banks and small caps lose in either of those scenarios. The only way 
um, they can really recover and have a sustainable recovery is if the Fed truly pivots and we get a rally in two-year treasuries, a bull steepener to say, you know, four and three quarters or four and a half or something. And the Fed admits, yeah, we might be cutting rates next year. Um, right. In that scenario, small caps and banks can recover, but not not the way the market and Fed policy is currently structured. All right. Let us talk about oil then. So Ben, Phillips reports on Thursday, it may be the only oil company not currently involved in a big merger. Tell us what's expected for earnings. Well, earnings are supposed to drop. They're going to fall to about $2.10 from $3.60. Uh, this is just uh, uh, Conoco and all the oil companies and then um, adjusting to uh, lower uh, oil prices um, you know, uh, this year versus, uh, versus last. Um, you know, the stock hasn't really done much this year. It's uh, up about a 1.6% uh, the last three months. It's down to 0.2%, so basically flat uh, this year. Um, and, you know, people are just, I think, really waiting to see what's the next thing that's going to drive the, uh, the oil stocks. Um, M&A, as you mentioned, has been big. Um, we had Exxon buying Pioneer, Chevrolet. Has um, they didn't pay it a very high premium for those stocks though, um, so it, it's it's unclear whether that actually helps energy stocks uh, at all. But Conoco, you know, pe people want to know: is it going to be getting uh, involved in this M and A? Um, there's reports that it was considered buying a pri buying a privately held company called Crown Rock. Um, others uh, um, are said to be interested in that company as well. Um, and it's also, I think, begs the question: Is Conoco at some point going to be bought out? Um, but it'll be interesting. I think there'll be a lot of attention paid to the dividend. Um, they pay a variable dividend now, um, and um, they paid uh, uh, last quarter it was uh, sixty cents. Um, and there's some uh, hope, at least from RBC, thinks that could go up to 70 cents a share. And so I think that would be uh, good news if, uh, you know, they're, they're feeling confident enough to, to up that dividend. All right. A lot of interest in that, for sure. I want to talk briefly about some of the pharma stocks. They have not been doing well during earnings season. Investors are very bearish on the sector. Tell us yeah. what's going on. Um, Josh Nathan Cases, who uh, is our um, healthcare reporter, um, just put out a story today you know, talking about this, just how bad it's been. Uh, Bristol Myers Squibb, for instance, reported on Thursday it dropped three point six percent. Abvi reported on Friday dropped six point three percent. Sanofi reported dropped nineteen percent. Um, it's just been bad, and um, it's it's hard to see it getting much better. Um, Pfizer is reporting on Tuesday uh, they're actually supposed to sink to a loss um, in the quarter. Um, and but the stock the stock is horribly beaten up down 41% this year. Um, but it's still for them, it's all about uh, the COVID vaccination rates and the sales there, um, as well as the drugs that are coming off patent. They've been making a lot of deals trying to uh, bring drugs in that can sort of uh, fill in that patent gap, um, for, fill in for those stocks that are those drugs that are going to come off patent. But the market really hasn't gotten behind that. Um, the, the good news for them is they do have, uh, they're getting closer to getting a combination vaccine, a combo flu uh, COVID vaccine out there. And uh, Cantor Fitzgerald's analysts think that that um, is going to actually be a, a huge thing because right now only about 17% of people in the U.S. Um, get the COVID vaccine, but 40 to 50% get the flu vaccine. And so if you get this combo, perhaps you get that COVID vaccination rate up to that 40 and 50% rate you do for the flu. And the, uh, the other part of it is that they're developing an mRNA flu vaccine, 
which um, should be more effective than the current one because you can produce it faster and maybe that lifts up the uh, historical flu vaccination rate, which would also be great. Um, so, but, but that's really where the hope is for Pfizer at this point. Uh, the other one that we have reporting is Moderna, which has um, really the same kind of issues as Pfizer, except it doesn't have all these other drugs that are bringing the money at this point. Um, they are really just a COVID play right now, and they need to show that uh, they at some point can be more than that, whether it's with their own combo vaccine, uh, their PCD uh, vaccine update, things like that. Um, but that stock is down 60% this year. Barron's has been a fan of it, but it really hasn't been able to find a bottom yet. Right, lastly, nothing. yes. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was say. Lastly, we're going to get Eli Lilly on Thursday. We're actually get Novo Nordisk too, and these are really the only stocks that have really worked in pharma um, because of the weight loss drugs. Uh, you know, originally diabetes drugs, but have been shown to uh, really reduce uh, weight in uh, in people who are, are um, obese, and that uh, has been huge for the stocks. Um, Eli Lilly is up fifty three percent. Um, it's actually going to uh, lose money in the quarter. It's taking a big charge. Um, but I think all anybody cares about is how quickly are these drugs growing? Um, they have new ones that are supposed to come to the market, including oral. Um, right now, you have to get a shot. At some point, there is going to be an oral form of these drugs. And I think that's what everyone's going to be listening to when they report on Thursday. All right. A lot of action in the sector, but not, not so good for many of the stocks. I have one more question for Barry, and then we're going to go to some listener questions. So, Barry, Barron's had a big cover story this weekend on why it's time to stop crying about the bond market and start buying bonds. And it seemed to do very well with readers. I'm wondering what you make of that thesis and whether you see values in the bond market right now. Um, I, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, I um, <clears throat> I do think the losses could end, um, you know, in the back end of the Treasury market, I think. If I, if I look at the level of valuation of the 10-year and 30-year part of the curve, we've had big moves in the real rate component of that. So the tips yields, if you will, the 10-year um, real rate averaged just over 200 basis points in the pre-QE era 2000s. Uh, it's now 200 or 246 basis points or 2.4. Four six percent to me that that represents reasonable value. My only concern with making a big call here that you should go all in on the on the bond market is when you look at these term premium models over time, <clears throat> they don't really tend to mean revert. Um, you know, for my I've been in the business thirty nine years. For the first uh, thirty six or so of those, the bond market rallied. Yeah, I mean, that's a almost a four-decade rally in the bond market. In the three decades before I got in the business, the bond market sold off. And so I'm a little bit reluctant when I look at the effect of QE on term premiums uh, and the fact that it just pushed them lower for 15 years to think, okay, we've had this a couple of year correction and, you know, the we're just going to go back to a uh, much more benign environment. So although I expect the Fed to cut next year, which should stabilize the market, I don't think that the longer term trend is going to be all that favorable. I also think that um, inflation is not going back to one and a half, two percent. It's more likely to be 
uh, over three on a go forward basis, in which case 10 year treasuries at, at roughly 5%, a little below 5% are fairly valued, but they're certainly not cheap. And so I, I could see there being a bit of a rally um, developing over the next month or two, but I think it'll be a, a sort of a bull rally within a longer term bear trend. Yeah, Barry, Andrew, um, again, Andrew Barry was on, um, it was making uh, some comments that he basically thinks that you just would, if you buy a bond now, you should just expect to earn the, uh, earn your, earn your, sorry, earn your coupon. Um, do you think that's a, a pretty good way of looking at things right now? I think that was a much more succinct way of saying what I just said. <laughs> so, yes, I, I do agree with that. And when I, you know, when I look at the bond market in particular, uh, I meant I referenced this a little bit earlier, the spread of mortgage-backed securities. So for the retail investor, Ginny Mays, um, is exceptionally wide. And that's because a, a you know inverted yield curve is is very difficult for those securities, right? So if I'm correct and we get a bull flattener or, or bull steepener, you know, two-year note yields come down, 10 stay where they are, those mortgage-backed securities will perform quite well. So there are opportunities in the bond market. I don't think the corporate credit market is all that attractive. Spreads really haven't widened at all this year for investment grade, at least. High yield's gone up a little bit. Um, but mortgage-backed securities could be very attractive at these levels. But again, yeah, I don't think you're going to make any capital gains if you buy 10-year treasuries from here over the next year. But, you know, earning out that 5% coupon is is a, a pretty decent return. So I think Andrew had it right in, as I said, a more succinct way than <laughs> when I put, put it. I, I feel like from your whole description of bond market secular trends, we should come back in 40 years if we want a great bull market. Yeah, it, it, I, you know, I, I wrote a note back in August of 2020, um, and I'm sure many people have said this over time, but I said the great bond bull market is dead. It just, to me, having 10-year note yields at half of 1%, made absolutely no sense whatsoever. It was driven by Fed excessive purchases. And uh, later it was the treasury cutting issuance. And so I, those levels just didn't make any sense. Um, now they're, you know, as I said, it's reasonable, but, you know, if we are truly moving into a higher inflationary environment, and I would equate this to something like the 60s where inflation just rose over time, um, yeah, we had a spike at the front end, but I do think that, you know, the main source of disinflation for 20 years was goods prices. And that could be largely traced to China and the Soviet bloc being integrated into global supply chains. Goods prices were falling at a 2.4% annualized rate in 2003, shortly after China was admitted into the WTO. That's not going to repeat itself. So, yeah. You know, mark goods prices at 2% and everything else runs at three and, you know, inflation is going to be at least three. So in that environment, you know, as I said, 10-year treasuries at five are, are reasonable, but they're not cheap. All right. We have some listener questions. Mark asks, he, he notes the market is obviously in contraction. What is the worst case scenario in terms of average stock multiples and for the market as a whole? I guess another way of asking it is how far down could the market go in a worst case scenario? Well, I, 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 um, as I, I 
detailed a little bit earlier, the framework that Chairman Powell laid out in September, where they're really looking for weaker growth um, in order to keep you know, the disinflationary trend intact, really does create a higher than normal probability of a financial accident. And um, the Fed will pivot if that happens. But, you know, getting a an impulsive sell-off where, you know, the VIX goes to 40, the VIX futures curve inverts, meaning the one year goes way above, you know, or one front month future goes way above six-month futures or three-month futures, that sort of a, a real stress situation is reasonably high. And if he gets the meeting wrong on Wednesday, that that possibility goes up. And so if the S&P went down, you know, sharply another five to 10 percent, the Fed would surely react and that would be the end of the cycle. But that's not out of the realm of, of possibility here. As I said, what that sounds the, sort of like the Fed put. Uh, yeah, I've been thinking about the Fed put more in terms of long term rates, but Yes, at some level, because of the situation in the banking system, um, the Fed would have to react to a, call it nonlinear tightening of financial conditions, right? Another fancy way of saying something of a, a mini crash. And right. uh, I, I do think that that is a, is a possibility. Now, because I think the Fed will react to that, uh, investors should have some powder dry and some of the best investments I've made in my 39 years have come by putting money to work in those impulsive sell-offs. But um, um, let me ask you, if there is some kind of a crisis, where do you think it would be manifested? I think it, I think the banking system is ground zero for this. Small and regional banks having to raise capital um, because they've got massive losses in their bond portfolio. There's that most of the multifamily real estate market, we've got a huge amount of supply that needs to be refinanced in 24 and 25. Um, again, that's generally financed in the small banking system. That is really that is really ground zero for a crisis. Now, you know, will we get another Silicon Valley bank? Maybe not. But those stocks, the way those stocks reacted to earnings season and the regional banks in particular, even on that very first day of earnings season, we had four banks report. One was a regional. The three, you know, big New York, New York based banks and Wells Fargo went up, but PNC went down. Right. So the regional banks are under pressure. That to me is where we would likely see uh, the crisis. We'll keep an eye on that. We had a question for Joanne from Joanne, putting a positive spin on things. Where do you see opportunities for growth next year? Well, I, I think that this productivity story um, is a is a very big deal. I think we have all the uh, building blocks in place for very strong capital spending. Uh, the industrial sector is sort of ground zero for that. We're rebuilding our manufacturing capital base. Um, the you know AI is just a part of that broader productivity story. I'll, I'll give an example just to make this a little bit less esoteric. So. If we think about Starbucks back in the 2010s, their comparable store sales had really stalled out. Um, they then invested quite a bit of money in their app and got a third of their customers to skip the line, pre-order their coffee, just come in and pick up their coffee. Their comp store sales took off. So 
productivity average, labor productivity averaged seven tenths of 1% from 2011 through 2017. It then accelerated to a little under 2%, which is closer to its post-World War II average in 18 and 19. And manufacturing productivity was negative at that point because of the global uh, trade war, the, the trade war with US and China, global manufacturing recession. It was services productivity that was accelerating. So the pandemic was actually an accelerant for that. AI is just part of that story. So the companies that you know make the software or investing in AI to help businesses deliver goods and services more efficiently using fewer bodies and more technology will be beneficiaries of it. But then the industries will be beneficiaries of that as well. So as I said, we've already seen it in consumer services. I expect it to start uh, you know, developing in financial services, even healthcare services, uh, the industrial sector. So there are, that productivity story to me is a real positive story. I've characterized it as productivity boom or policy bust. And so by 2014, we ought to be done with this tightening cycle. The Fed ought to be um, reversing some of the rate hikes. That stabilizes the banking system. And then capital flows to this productivity, capital spending boom that I expect. But um, that's, the, that's the 24 outlook. We still have to get through the rest of 23 first. All right. You've got to come back in 24 and tell us how it all turned out and what happens in 25. So I want to thank you for joining us today, Barry, and thank you also, Ben. Thanks for having me. A pleasure. So tomorrow on Barron's Live, please join us again when Associate Editor Reshma Kapadia speaks with Priya Milani, founder of Stash Wealth, a virtual financial advisor for millennials. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in today. Thanks for your questions. Stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.